Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio, coming to you from the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in your nation's capital, Washington, D.C. In your nation's capital today... We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. In rural Maine, we have Tom Ricks, the author of Churchill and Orwell. And in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, we have Corey Shockey of Stanford University. And I'm David Rothkopf, uh, your host. And I am in sweltering New York City going through a very rough spell of Indian summer. Uh, We go through Indian summer in New York City every single year, late September. Um, And every single year, everybody is surprised by it. Uh, This reminds me a little bit of the situation in Afghanistan, uh, which is where I'd like to start today, uh, because we've been going through that now for 17 years. uh, And periodically, we have the exact same discussions, discussions about the costs of leaving, discussions about the benefits of adding troops, discussions about... um, the fact that the guys on the ground there, the Taliban and the locals, always win as they wait out uh, visitors since the time of Alexander. Um, and, you know, Tom, you have written about this. You've been there. You've followed this. Uh, and I went I'm to wondering, high school there. You went? Yeah, well. I went to high school in Afghanistan. D- well, you did? Yeah. <laughs> I, I was in the Afghan junior ski patrol. Is that right? Yeah, Tom is the only person I've ever met who has done recreational skiing in Afghanistan. <laughs> yeah, up in the Talang Pass, actually. So um, they're, they're how not was that... the skiing? Skiing was great. Um, Tom, Tom, you have to, at some point, you have to write a book about that. I should. I loved Afghanistan. I, yeah. I still do. I enjoyed going back there. I hated Iraq, just being there. But uh, even in the middle of war, I enjoyed being in Afghanistan. Partly, you know, we'd be going by. I remember Susan Glasser and I were riding along once, and I and I pointed up, um, and I said, "That's where my junior prom was." And then I pointed over there, and I said, "That's where I had my first kiss." And she just started cracking up. <laughs> uh, who, did, who was the recipient of your first kiss, if we may ask? <laughs> I remember her name with great admiration and honor. <laughs> Discretion being the better part of the valor. Well played, Tom. Ray. No, no, I, you were Tom. You were a, a gentleman, uh, and yeah, I also admire the way you avoided, you know, you, talking about downhill skiing and going immediately to, the, you know, an Afghan. It's all been downhill since then in Afghanistan and so forth. Oh, but, David. Uh, but will we slalom our way to victory? No. No. Okay, no. this is even worse than Buried the visuals. Buried under an avalanche. The puns are worse policy. than the visuals, fellas. Yeah, well, I'm really, I actually really... did ski in an avalanche once. Um, in the Salang Pass, we got to the bottom, and there were the remains of an avalanche, and I broke a ski, skiing into it. 
and my father turned around and looked at me, fell down and broke a rib. So it was just a, a great morning of skiing in Salang, in Salang Pass. Well, now we understand why you loved Afghanistan so much. <laughs> the pain <laughs> and injuries. <laughs> if we can fast forward from your senior prom to today in <laughs> Afghanistan, which is not a transition we often make. Uh, I'm, I'm just wondering, do you think things are going to turn out worse for the United States in Afghanistan than they did for you on the night of your senior prom? Yes, I do. Um, I, I think what you saw, Trump's education, and that would be a good book on Trump and foreign policy, of the education of Donald Trump. What Trump was educated on Afghanistan is, sir, we're not doing this because we like to. We're doing this because we can't think of anything else to do there. Um, so Trump signed up, which is, we don't have any answers, except we think leaving is worse than staying, so we're just going to stay. But we don't have any solutions beyond that. And what is your response to that line of reasoning? Uh, it, I'm ambivalent about it. It seems to me a prudent approach, but not an imaginative one. You've got to think there's, there's got to be a better way than this. I mean, and telling Pakistan they're in the doghouse uh, doesn't seem to have any effect whatsoever. No, it seems like the, it's it's always necessary for Trump to have somebody to smack, and it's really kind of you know he sort of didn't have somebody to smack there, and uh, I think this also sort of got him in good with the Indians, who he wants to be in good with, which you know honestly I think is probably a good thing. Um, Corey, what's your view of this moment that we find ourselves in here, uh, in which we are embracing a policy we are almost certain will not improve things? Um, I disagree with that premise. I do not think the Trump administration's policy is so cynical as to believe that it's not going to make progress. Moreover, I also think that is, I also think it appreciably is making progress. Um, and uh, two things that are different in Afghanistan from five or 10 years ago. The first is you have an Afghan leadership that is a lot that is legitimately empowered by the will of the Afghan people and that is aligned well with the United States and what both of us are trying to achieve in Afghanistan. That was not the case under the previous administration in Afghanistan. And it did set back war efforts and legitimacy of the government in the eyes of its own people quite dramatically. The second thing that is different is that 10 years ago, the American military was doing the bulk of the fighting in Afghanistan, and now Afghans are doing it. And they're doing it at exorbitantly high casualty rates and yet have a volunteer force that Afghans continue to volunteer for. Their professionalism is improving. Their, the fight they have got in them for what needs doing is extraordinary. The reason territory has been lost is that we have been giving Afghans more and more responsibility for the outcomes in their own country. That's good for the legitimacy of the government and the military forces, and it's but it's hard slogging. It's a long-term undertaking. And I'm reasonably confident that I am going to get to ski safely in Afghanistan uh, 10 years from now. But, uh, but 
it's hard going and it's two steps forward and one step back. On the Pakistan the issue, national ski area in Afghanistan. <laughs> okay, Tom, I object. That is twice you have characterized my view as fictional. Um, and I call foul on that. Uh, I apologize. I'll, 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 call them, um, I'll call them imaginative. How's that? Tom will make it up to you. By okay, but you just you. used unimaginative as a criticism of something else. So, yes, I will take that as a compliment coming from okay. you. And as I say, Tom will make it up to you by. By, by skiing with you in 10 years and showing you this. <laughs> Fantastic. Experience. Well, I can, I, let me throw in um, a cynical explanation. And, and Corey, I, I, don't, I don't entirely share your optimism. Um, uh, I hope you're right. Uh, and I hope we're all skiing in Afghanistan in a decade. Um, but, but here's a, here's a, a, a cynical hypothesis. This, this isn't about what Mattis thinks he's doing or even what Donald Trump thinks he's doing. But this is my husband. Let's call this call this Joe's hypothesis about Afghanistan. This is my husband Joe, uh, recently retired after a long career in U.S. Army Special Forces, and his extremely cynical take on what we're doing in Afghanistan is we are advancing the careers of lots of military personnel uh, that the military itself has no incentive whatsoever to call it quits on Afghanistan because this war actually works out incredibly well from a career perspective. It kills very few Americans, some, but not very many. Um, and if you want to advance in a military that still uh, really prizes uh, experience in combat above everything else uh, when it comes to getting your next promotion and so forth, uh, you need opportunities to go into combat. And this is a nice, relatively safe, uh, enduring conflict that lets everybody advance their careers at very low risk to the institution at this stage in time. And therefore, the military has no incentive whatsoever to bring things in Afghanistan to any sort of resolution because this is working out very, very well. Um, I always roll my eyes and say, oh, surely, honey, that's so cynical. Can it be true? And he, he's, he's, he's very uh, convinced of this. I'm Tom, and I'm curious to know what your reaction to that is. Um, I defer to his time in special ops because, but I think that might be uh, separate from the rest of the military. I think special ops really has become a special service. And yeah, I totally believe the time on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq is essential for promotion in uh, special operations now. Uh, I'm not sure it's true of the rest of the military. There actually was a study done at the Army War College a couple of years ago on Iraq and promotions, and it found that having been a division commander in Iraq slightly hurt your chances of being promoted to three stars as a three-star general in the Army. Hmm, interesting. Well, you know, it, it's, it seems like self-interest must play some sort of role in this, but the, the you know, the, the most sort of compelling counter-argument I, I think that I come up with towards what Corey is describing is that no one has ever had any success there. Why do we think that we will all of a sudden be the first, particularly after almost two decades there? So well, it's well, not true that nobody's had success there. Afghans have had success there. Look at pictures of Afghanistan from the 1970s when Tom was skiing there. Um, I... Um, this graveyard of empires argument 
first of all, um, uh, takes away from Afghanistan responsibility for good outcomes they have created for themselves in the past. Okay. I need to agree with Corey on something. Um, so I'm going to sign up especially for this one. She's totally right. I had the same thought. When I lived in Afghanistan, there was a splendid equilibrium between Kabul and the countryside, developed and implemented and enforced by Afghans. Um, the, the, the king was sort of mayor of Kabul and welcome to visit in the rest of the country. And that's probably the model we should be looking for. And I, and I actually think it's where the current uh, President Ashraf Ghani seems to be heading. Well, let me let me move a little bit over in the region uh, to something that's a little bit more timely and topical. And I think all these things are pieces that fit together. Uh, and turn to the referendum that everybody is trying to quash in Kurdistan about the independence of, of Kurdistan. Now, here are the Kurds who have fought um, courageously uh, on our side and, and a variety of things um, who offer a kind of a counterbalance to the Iraqis, a counterbalance to the Iranians, a counterbalance to the increasingly uh, wayward Turks. Um, uh, they have the support of the Israelis. They have a lot of support from sort of moderate Arab states who are our allies. And yet when it comes to this idea of their own independence, our continuing response seems to be no, not yet, don't ask, it's just too complicated. And I'm just wondering, all of you guys have a lot of experience and have thought about issues like this. I'm wondering where you come out on it. Let me start with you, Corey. Uh, please don't start with me. I'm thinking okay, my way through this. Start with Tom. Let me, let me rephrase that. Let me start with you, Tom. Uh, Years ago, when I was writing a book and my book editor wanted why he hadn't seen it yet, I started telling him how I was deep into the memoirs of Churchill and really enjoying them, but I was only in volume three of six. And he said, what are you going to read next, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire? So just to, to be mean to him, I did. And if you go into the unedited version of Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, on about page 1,460, there is a one-paragraph reference to the Kurds. And the Kurds actually, more properly, have the reputation that the Afghans have. Um, Gibbon writes about the Kurds, the Kurds are a fiercely independent mountainous people. The Romans were never able to solve this problem. That's excellent. Oh, oh my God. Kurds, I really, I, are, I, I just have this image of Corey sitting there fanning herself a little bit. <laughs> at, at, this is the kind of academic <laughs> reference. Corey, arcane Corey is, academic. Fact, turning cartwheels. She is so <laughs> elated with that arcane literary and historical reference. And uh, it even brings her to the point where she will uh, weigh in on the Curtis issue. Uh, this one I'm genuinely divided on. Robert Ford, who I think is one of the best American diplomats of our generation, who was a brilliant ambassador in Syria at the start of the Syrian protests against the Bashar al-Assad government, uh, really caused me to, to reconsider my views with a piece he wrote a few days ago arguing that the Kurdish referendum is 
justified because of the number of times, especially since 2003, the United States has gotten the Kurdish regional government to move ahead with the promise of future benefits that we then never produce and the Iraqi government never produces for them. Uh, before Robert Ford shook my confidence, I thought I, I thought my views on the Kurdish issue were, when I started working on Iraq in the Joint Staff in the summer of 1990, right after Iraq invaded Kuwait, one of the things that was most striking was that um, Kurdish leadership were killing each other at wedding parties, right? Like the Kurd-on-Kurd -Kurd violence. And I, up until Robert Ford shook my confidence, I really believed that the Kurdish government, uh, the Kurdish region of Iraq deserved to be seen as a real American success story of nation building. Because after the 91 Iraq war, the United States encouraged other countries to join us in keeping troops in the Kurdish region and creating safe space and security committing to it over the long term, protecting them, encouraging economic, humanitarian activity and economic investment and political development and growing leaders that were much more cooperative. And I think now it, the Kurds are Iraq's sectarian success story. And we deserve a fair amount of credit for providing the security that made that possible. Um, and so I thought they were being incredibly ungrateful for that assistance, and they were about to bring disaster down on their own heads for reasons that looked to me like, you know, an elderly politician wanting his swan song of, of accolades from the public. Um, and as Iran closed its airspace to aircraft going to Erbil at the Iraqi government's request, as the disputed areas started to heat up, as Turkey became voluble on this, it looked to me like the Kurds were bringing bad outcomes on their down on their own heads. But Robert Ford's reclama on that, I'm I'm really genuinely split on this one in a way as you guys know i rarely am <laughs> um yeah no i in fact i never recall you being split on any issue um but i uh, uh and i'm sorry that you missed the opportunity at the beginning of that uh intervention to say gibbon you're exactly right um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah uh, I don't agree with Gibbon on all that much. So you're right. It would have been generous for me to give him that one. It, it, no, it really, it would have really, it would have been a really nice touch. But Rosa, you know, I know that you're the the warm-hearted sentimentalist of this crowd, and you know, I, I have to say, what do the Kurds have to do in order to gain our support for their independence? Well, that's very simple, David. And for years, I felt very strongly about this. They need to change their name from Kurd. It is not a good name in English. They need, they need to be rebranded and called something like the Pink Fluffy Unicorns. That It's very clear to me that their name is all that stands between them and success in forming a new nation. So um, they're the they, Middle Eastern version of the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. Quite right. Yeah. Quite right. They, they. Yeah. Or, or, or alternatively, <laughs> the Middle East. Or alternatively, the Middle Eastern version of um, Israel. 
Well, that's not what they already are. <laughs> and what? the Israelis have now recognized the <laughs> referendum, right? First well, as countries to do so. I- it would really be hard for them not to, right? Given the size of the Kurdish population, the fact that the right to self-determination has so, been baked well, into I the international it's cake a good for a thing long that the time. The Kurds have hired a political consultant, Paul Manafort, to help them out with their image issues here in the United States. So. <laughs> Because oh, if there's anyone who can clean if up their image, it's clearly going to be Donald Trump's former campaign head. <laughs> well, the two largest nations in the world that don't have their own country are the Kurds and the Catalans. And they're both looking for a vote right now to move towards a more separate existence. Don't they deserve it? Yes, they do. Well, and indeed, uh, I, I, I mean, um, to make a more serious point about about uh, international relations and, and the future of the so-called global order, you know, I there are all kinds of ways, and there's there's a increasing uh, scholarly literature debating this in in which the the insistence that borders shall be inviolable and shall not be changed except through you know mutual consent um, has in some ways fomented conflict rather than reduced conflict, and the the, the the fear that we all have, um, you know, not not wholly unjustified, obviously, of, of sort of proliferating micro nationalisms that then fragment larger states. Um, you know, that fear is not unjustified. But on the other hand, the must keep states together at all costs uh, has also been responsible for a tremendous amount of bloodshed. And, you know, I think that I think that a a better world would move towards a more graduated view of sovereignty that allowed for the existence of a larger number of sort of quasi state like actors uh, on the scene. So it's not so much the the largely all or nothing uh, global map that we now have, um, which puts so much pressure on on statehood and puts so much pressure on nationalist groups uh, at the moment you know, that's what we're sort of stuck with. And uh, if there were a way out of that, I think that we would actually reduce conflict rather than increase it. So I think that's, oops, I'm sorry, David. No, no, it's it's okay. Go go ahead. Corey, I know you're going to speak up because Tom left out one of the states that is, you know, next on the line here, the Kurds and the Catalans, and then obviously California is next on the list. Ah, no, we like our neighbors to the north, to the east, and to the south. Um, But uh, we also face the problem, we Californians also face the problem that I was going to raise, actually, about the Kurds. Because uh, whether or not they deserve their own country is, in my judgment, not the most relevant question. Whether they have the ability to create and keep their own country, it strikes me as the more relevant question. California is probably not tough enough to hold our own if our neighbors didn't want us to be independent. And I very much doubt Kurdistan has the ability to sustain its independence, especially if it chooses to take it over American objections. The uh, My first Early on in my time working in the Joint Staff, I was a note-taker at a meeting in the summer of 1990, right after Iraq invaded Kuwait, 
where General Powell and his Turkish counterpart were meeting to talk about what to do about this. And his Turkish counterpart said, fair enough for you guys to throw Iraq out of Kuwait, but if you, uh, if you go beyond that, Saddam Hussein will fall from power. The state of Iraq will break into three pieces and Turkey will be required to take the northern third of it because we cannot live with an independent Kurdish state. I'm not sure Turkish attitudes have changed that much over those last uh, 27 years, and I'm not sure Iranian attitudes or uh, Iraqi attitudes or Syrian attitudes have changed that much either. I really doubt whether the Kurds actually have the ability to create an independent state over the objections of their compatriots in Iraq and over their neighbors. Well, Tom, let me... um beat this dead horse for one more second. Um, Nobody ever beats a dead unicorn, I just want to point out. That, no, that's tr- that's, a, that's a good point, but I'll leave that to Corey. I know that's me keeper. you're aiming at. That's the, <laughs> right. Corey is the keeper of the unicorns, at least for the day. But um, and, and, you know, it's interesting because we do have, in a, our legion of animal followers out there, we have our own animal farm, if you will, uh, uh, Tom, uh, that follows this uh, podcast. There is Corey Shockey's horse. Perhaps Corey Shockey's horse should really be Corey Shockey's unicorn. Uh, well, we'll leave that to people out there to determine. Uh, but, but I, I just want to come back to you on this, Tom. And I want to, um, you know, I, I had a just raise a question. I had a little exchange on Twitter um, this week with uh, Dan Shapiro. He was the former U.S. ambassador to Israel. And he said, you know, as in the Obama administration and the Trump administration, the United States has determined it's not in our national interest for there to be an independent Kurdistan. And yet, when you look at the direction Iraq is going, which is under the thumb of Iran and not terribly able to control its whole country, and in the direction that Syria is going, and in the direction that Iran is going, and in the direction that our relations with Iran are going, and at the direction that the Turks are going in terms of their obstreperousness, their closeness to the Russians, their corruption, their authoritarianism, and so forth, uh, and the fact that the Kurds have been dependably loyal to us and to our other allies in the region. And if you were sort of saying, well, look, let's let's have a grand strategy for the Middle East, and let's try to put together a new coalition to counterbalance the regional expansion of Iran, which is really the greatest threat within the region, wouldn't it be... Um, uh, in our interest in that kind of a setting to say, well, look, uh, uh, if not explicitly, at least tacitly, the Israelis, the Arab moderates, and the Kurds are our natural allies in this, and we should promote uh, uh, the relationships with them and their ability to support our interests in the region. You write that piece, and I'll run it. Um, <laughs> actually, and I think uh, the, the Israeli uh, Saudi alliance um, strikes me as one of the more underreported stories out there. It seems to me there clearly is an alliance between the two, and the Kurds, yes, would make another chunk. Um, However, you are building a policy or strategy on the weaker reeds of the region. Um, I actually think Henry Kissinger was right. Our longer-term interest is probably in an alliance with Iran. Um, once this current regime is gone. So I'm not sure I'd want to go down that road, but sure, it's an interesting question to pursue. 
Uh, and it goes back to David Kilcullen's observation that the states that claim to be closest to us usually have the people who hate us most, and the opposite is also true. The people who like us most in the Middle East are the Iranians. Uh, so I think uh, the alliance of weak reeds is an interesting thought. I don't think it would work, and at the end of the day, I think it would wind up with what always happens to the Kurds. They get screwed by American policy. Well, they certainly have gotten screwed by American policy. I can't help but notice uh, in a kind of nice counterpoint to uh, a, a reference made to this uh, earlier in our podcast, I'm not sure whether it was this one or the one before, um, that you, you talk about how the Iranian people like us, and they too were a target of our most recent restatement of the uh, immigration ban of the Trump administration, uh, which can't possibly endear us to those people. Uh, and I just, as a footnote, would like to give uh, Rosa an opportunity to speak about that immigration policy. <laughs> There's not much more to say other than uh, it's obviously causing bafflement and confusion to everyone, including the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, uh, which has basically asked for new briefs on the question of uh, is this actually different from the old stuff and are we still hearing this case and what the heck are you people doing and what is going on over there? Um, so, I, you know, it, it, it looks every bit as mealy-mouthed as the old one. I haven't read it carefully yet, though, in terms of the actual text. Mealy-mouthed, but yet somehow uh, laying the foundation for an exclusionary immigration policy, uh, slightly dressing up the anti-Islamic components of it by throwing in a couple of other states. But the choices of states are kind of peculiar. <laughs> a little bit Yes, random. <laughs> for example, the Sudan, which is on the state sponsors of terrorism list, is exempted. But Chad, which is a close American ally in terrorism operations, is uh, banned I don't get that at And all. as several people uh, have commented uh, on Twitter, uh, Russia, which is one of the few states known to have engaged in acts that we might reasonably regard as hostile to the United States in the last uh, year, is, of course, not on the list. <laughs> yeah, I was one of those people. You were uh, one of those people, David. I was one of those people. And on top of that, Venezuela is on the list. But it does raise the question of, isn't that the kind of country where there are many people who are sympathetic to us that we should actually be welcoming into the United States um, I think that's as political exactly refugees? Right. Exactly, exactly, exactly. One of the, Rose, the case that Rosa made about North Korea policy, and shouldn't we be encouraging uh, refugees, really does the... Do our humanitarian instincts not extend to Venezuelans and what they're experiencing now? Our humanitarian instincts apparently extend only about, you know, two inches in front of our faces. I don't think we have any humanitarian instincts anymore. I think that that's just something that the Trump administration is not interested in, including, by the way, in places like Puerto Rico, which are actually part of the United States. You're kidding. Um, no, I, I know. Sorry, but no, I, I, no, I, I agree that I'm shocked by the reaction to Puerto Rico. There really is a feeling that well, those are brown people. Those are not really Americans. Don't they speak Spanish over there? Exactly. Yeah. They should like go to Mexico or something. It seems to be the American attitude. It's 94 degrees today in San Juan, Puerto Rico. 
and nobody seems to be doing much to help them. Well, Puerto Rico was in significant amount of trouble before the hurricane, uh, financially speaking, and as part of the Puerto Rico isn't really part of the U.S. Uh, approach of the U.S. Congress, Puerto Rico, unlike the rest of the United States, other other states, has not been able to benefit from the ability to declare bankruptcy and reorganize their finances in various ways. Um, there, you know, that that part of the, the hurricane was not caused by the U.S. Congress or by Donald Trump, uh, but but the difficulties, the financial difficulties that Puerto Rico is having, which are compounding the problems with hurricane recovery, are absolutely can be many of them can be laid directly at the door of the U.S. Congress. Well, let's 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 work you guys up into a little bit of a lather on this. Puerto Rico is part of the United States. It's bankrupt. Uh, it, its people may be without power uh, for three, oh, three to six or four months. months. Um, uh, there are elderly people sweltering in nursing homes without power, without water, without food. The president hasn't spoken on it. Nobody has done anything on it. And then to compound that, Puerto Rico was a place where the United States Navy has invested a huge amount, uh, spent a huge amount, been deeply involved, uh, and the U.S. military hasn't responded in the, in, 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 in the ways that you think it might or it might be, be used in this regard. This, by the way, is to say nothing of the rest of the American Caribbean, the Virgin Islands, and so forth, all of which seems to me to be a humanitarian disaster and an uh, emergency management screw-up that exceeds the one that was associated with Katrina. How come there's not more fervor in the coverage of this? Why is Trump not getting more opprobrium for his complete failure to respond to the needs of Americans in need? So, uh, you know, one of the things President Trump is brilliant at is creating a furor over something else to distract attention from what he is failing at. And over the weekend, uh, while we were all worked up into a lather about the president encouraging the firing of private individuals from their jobs um, and disgracing himself by not understanding that the First Amendment explicitly protects politically charged speech, he said he's had nothing to say about Puerto Rico, and it's disgraceful. I agree with Rosa that the Congress should be ashamed of itself, but also the president should be ashamed of himself. And uh, the only people who I think do deserve positive regard on this count is that the Navy and Marine Corps are actually doing some useful stuff, trying to reopen airfields and clear the roads in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. They they do have operations going on. They do have supply ships uh, already there and steaming there to try and help manage this problem. But you would not know that from the leadership of the commander-in-chief. I just yeah. want to say I found this whole conversation more depressing than our previous podcast in which we discussed the prospect of nuclear war. Wow. Yeah. Rosa, Rosa will take that as a compliment. <laughs> I will, I know. I can't disagree with that. Well, it, it, is, it is depressing. Let me, we just have a couple of minutes left here, and I had in our sort of tour of the Middle East wanted to end up with Iraq and ISIS and the state of affairs 
uh, there because it's an area where the president on a regular basis is touting great achievements, many of which are associated with Obama-era uh, initiatives. But also I noticed that the president, um, with regard to this particular war, seems to be loosening up um, the, the, the rules of engagement um, in ways that can, it seems to me, can only lead to greater civilian casualties and, uh, and more hostility towards the U.S. Again, because we're talking about whether football players are kneeling on the sideline or not, this hasn't gotten a lot of coverage. And so, Tom, I was wondering if you might address that and your sense of this particular uh, one of our wars. I'm actually going to punt here because I don't feel I have a good sense right now of what's going on with Iraq. I, I, I can't figure it out, and I defer to my smarter and wiser colleagues to tell me. Well, I think that he means um, me. He means Corey. Corey. Yeah, oh, Corey. <laughs> I, I, possibly it was Corey also. <laughs> I think I uh, was in Iraq in August and came away much more hopeful than I have been in a considerable amount of time about Iraq's future. The Kurdish referendum being the burr under the saddle, though, because I I, I'm worried about the Iraqi government's reaction to it more than I am worried about the Kurdish vote, the outcome of which I think is easily predictable. Um, but uh, Iraq, I do think the Abadi government had, well, well, uh, let me, instead of saying what I think, say what Iraqis think, which is I saw a poll recently that 60-some percent of Sunni Iraqis are hopeful for the future. Less than 40 percent of Shia Iraqis, that is, the people who are in the majority in Iraq, less than 40 percent of them are hopeful about the future. I do think the key for for both peace and, and stability in Iraq is the Shia majority uh, accommodating uh, legitimate governance uh, desires on the part of both Kurds and Sunni. And in the Maliki government, with the complicity of the uh, Obama administration, we did much, much, much too little to make the institutions of governance work in Iraq, to uphold the independence of the Constitution and the Supreme Court. We allowed Maliki to politicize the institutions of governance. And I think Sunni Iraqis' re hope for the future is the, the reflect that elementary elections that are coming up in the spring in Iraq. Um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say that that was actually my dog. My actual dog is here participating in this podcast with me. And she was very upset by your comments. No, in fact, she was endorsing my view. She was agreeing that that uh, well, sometimes if they, if they can navigate... Uh, if they can navigate the Kurdish referendum without blowing the roof off the house, I actually think politics are beginning to work normally in Iraq and compromise is beginning to work. And I think that will be reflected in the parliamentary elections in the spring, provided they don't get derailed by the Kurdish referendum. 
I don't Ro- think Rosa, the, that, that actually sounds right to me. I, 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 I hope you're right. And it seems less unicornish than, than uh, your, your, your cheerful 15% prediction of nuclear annihilation, Corey. Okay, I object, Rosa, with you piling on on the description of my views. I like unicorns. I have nothing against them. And yet they do not exist in nature. But they exist exist in our minds, and that is what matters. They They exist in Silicon Valley, though. That's what you're (laughs) headed towards, right, David? No, I was going to say they exist in your nature, Corey. Your your sunny disposition. Uh, I mean... I have seldom heard a more upbeat take on, on, on Iraq. But, you know, Tom is upbeat on Afghanistan. You're upbeat on Iraq. Um, Everybody nobody gets cares. to be upbeat about one country. It, 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 what's yours, Rosa? Well, like, it's not ours. I'm, I'm sort of upbeat on China. Uh, uh, which, uh, <laughs> well, good choice. <laughs> yeah. Good choice. I'm a realist. <laughs> Well, all this is going on, China's just doing great. You know, they've got a few problems, but they're growing, they're prospering. Do you know that China, I wrote a piece on this the other day, do you know that China sends, is the number one outbound destination of tourists in the world? 135 million Chinese. Every- there are a lot of people in China, it turns out. Yeah. I was amazed <laughs> I, I mean, basically, the Mona Lisa, the temperature in the room is about... 10 degrees higher than the rest of the Louvre just because all these Chinese tourists are standing there taking selfies in front of it. Yeah, well, but it's 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 a remarkable thing because it's I mean, wonderful. And, and there are big consequences of this, right? I mean, the Chinese are sending out now in excess of 500,000 students a year to study abroad. The most the places they send them are the US, the UK, Australia, New Zealand and Japan. Open capitalist societies. Um, and over the course of the next 20 years, that means that, you know, a very, very substantial portion of the elites of China for the next generation are going to be educated, at least in part, outside of China. They're sending out 135 million people a year, and it's growing at a rate of about 6% a year. So China will know more about the rest of the world and their options in the rest of the world and the way the rest of the world works than it has ever known before in its history. And it and and that's a remarkable thing. And it suggests that change in China um, is is go, is going to start coming in other ways to accompany the growth that they've enjoyed since Deng in nineteen seventy nine. I think uh, that is oops, I'm sorry. I think that is exactly right, David. Hundred and thirty thousand Chinese students 135 million Chinese tourists a year. 135,000 Chinese students in American colleges every single year. They probably don't go home hoping that their children behave like our children, but they probably do go home uh, with some appreciation of what it's like to be able to control your government. And that's actually all we need for the rise of China to be beneficial for us all. Well, and it says something, doesn't it, Tom? If about only the we benefits. could control our government. And, well, it says something about the benefits of letting other people into our country, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, the in in my little town in rural Maine, the uh, the availability of food in the grocery store, the different types of food, uh, ethnic diverse stuff, uh, has become much greater because the local high school here accepts students from China. 
and charges them an arm and a leg, like thirty thousand bucks a year tuition uh, in the right. ward. And um, you know, in in this little town in rural Maine, there's probably a hundred huh. Chinese students. Huh. And one of them was interviewed in the paper, and he said, "They said, what are you, what, what are your classes like?" And he said, "Well, English." In history, I find kind of hard, but the physics we're doing in 11th grade is the physics I did in 7th grade back in China. Right. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, no, no, and that's, you know, and that, by the way, if you take that number, the total number of Chinese students studying in the United States right now is about a quarter of a million a year, um, for including high in fact, school, college I've been college told there were more Chinese military officers at a, studying at graduate programs at American universities than there are American military officers. At American universities. Wow, I did not uh, know that. That is a powerful uh, statistic with which we can leave the listeners to this particular episode, uh, and further support for Rose's pick as the the, the the country to be optimistic about. And I think I'm going to side with her. I think I'm going to be more optimistic about China than I am about Afghanistan or Iraq. But having said that. Another great discussion, another reason why everybody should listen to uh, uh, this podcast on a regular basis, because we have great <laughs> people on it. Tell your friends, share it with your friends, build the momentum. Um, we, we, we will be back next week to help you do that. Uh, and we know the world will accommodate us by providing new things to talk about. In the meantime, thank you, Tom Ricks in rural Maine. Thank you, Corey Shockey in Philadelphia. Thank you, Rosa Brooks in Washington. And Rosa, thanks to your dog for showing up uh, to this episode. Uh, <laughs> I and, think she contributed and, a lot. She did. And there are a lot of people out there. Your dog has a lot of fans. And there are a lot of people out there who, who are glad to know um, that your dog is as real as Corey's unicorns and are. And paying <laughs> close attention to global affairs. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, You're everybody. Get an extra biscuit. That, yes, extra biscuit for Rosa's dog. Um, okay, thanks everybody, and we'll Bye, see you folks. next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.